Greetings, everybody, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet. I'm your host, Jeff Tett, CEO of Results, where we believe if you stall, you fall. And running your business is hard enough, let alone worrying about how to get your team executing. But the truth is, you shouldn't have to worry about it. And that's where we come in. We partner with your leadership team to help make execution simpler so you can grow your business with employees who care, customers who are loyal, and results that are more predictable. And I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. And, and it's one of the reasons why is that one of a leader's biggest fears is that their people aren't telling them the truth. And in fact, every day in the workplace, people are keeping their ideas and opinions to themselves. And while that might work well for self-protection, it robs our companies of better ideas, healthy conflict, and innovation. And we're going to be joined shortly by one of the world's leading management thinkers, Amy Edmondson, where she'll share the three keys for creating psychological safety and becoming the kind of leader who can unlock the potential in your teams. And I want to thank some of our show sponsors, the hardworking team at the Edmonton Community Foundation, where they connect donors and Edmonton area charities to help create strong communities for generations to come through the power of endowment. Now, just one example of the impact they've made in the last year alone is the ECF provided $100,000 to the Mental Health Foundation to help develop the Text for Hope partnership with Alberta Health Services. Since then, more than 50,000 Albertans have been accessing this daily resource to help get them through the pandemic. You can set up your own fund by contacting them at the ecfoundation.org. And of course, our friends at Project Forest, they've got a cool venture where they're connecting corporations with their corporate, social, and environmental goals by reforesting the Canadian landscape. And they are proud to announce the lucky winner of their tree story contest, Karen Fisher. Now, Karen's the lucky winner of a $250 gift certificate for landscaping trees. So we'll be reaching out to Karen to make sure she gets her hands on that $250 gift card. Also want to thank our show sponsor, Profound Talent. Now, Profound Talent elevates your business through your greatest asset, your people. Through executive and professional level recruitment and leadership development, Profound Talent is your partner in growth. You can contact Terry and her awesome team for a conversation at profoundtalent.com. And guess whose birthday it is today? That's right, Unleashed. So we're one year old today. So one year ago, right now, we launched Unleashed with John Spence. And who would have thought we'd still be going and even making it uh, more interesting, who would have thought we would be drawing and attracting guests like Amy Edmondson. So thank you to everyone who's made this happen. And to celebrate, we're giving away copies and signed copies of Amy's latest book. And we're also giving away $50 shop local gift cards. You'll automatically be entered into the draw for autographed copies of Amy's book in the bonus offer form at the end of today's episode, and you'll receive bonus entries for the books and also for the shop local gift cards by posting your comments about today's episode to social media using the hashtag unleash results and the draw is going to be made on Monday. So my guest today really requires no introduction, but I'm going to do it anyways. We're so delighted to welcome Amy Edmondson. So now Amy is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School. Edmondson has been recognized by the Thinkers 50 Global Ranking of Management Thinkers since 2011, and most recently was ranked as high as number three in 2019. Now in that same year, she also received their prestigious Breakthrough Idea Award. She studies teaming, psychological safety, 
and organizational learning, and her articles have been published in all of the major academic and management outlets. Amy has authored several books, her most recent, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. And it offers a practical guide for organizations that are serious about success in the modern economy. And we're giving away, of course, signed copies today. Amy, welcome to Unleashed. Jeff, thank you for having me and happy birthday and happy anniversary and all the rest. It's really an enormous, you have certainly accomplished a lot for a one-year-old. Thank you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> when you put it that way, thanks so much, Amy. Yeah, you know, it was interesting in the, uh, in the bio or in, in the opening episode a year ago, I made a joke that we knew this show was going to go nowhere fast if all we could get for guests was going to be my next door neighbor, Larry. And, you know, when I said that, I, you know, there, there was no there was no way we we're going to we were going to be having people like Amy Edmondson on the show. And I remember like it, it took me probably close to an hour to write an email to you in July. And I thought, well, I'm going to go for it. You, you don't there's no you don't you know, you miss all the shots you don't take. And lo and behold, here we are today. So, Amy, it's so gracious of you to be with us. Not at all. I think you've had far more distinguished guests than myself over the past year. So you're you're selling yourself short for sure. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's that's debatable. You're up you're up there with uh, with all of them. So, and there's a lot to get to today, Amy. And and uh, the hardest part, I think, in, in my preparation for our conversation was trying to distill the essence of the things that we wanted to talk about today. So we'll do our best to uh, to get it all out there and 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 hit the key points and. I mean, you've you've been doing research on teaming and how you create great work environments for people to show up and do their best work together for, I mean, over 20 years now. And the team dynamic is really changing as the world is evolving. So maybe where we'll start is, can you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in the world right now with your research about how the world is evolving and how teams are going to need to sort of uh, behave differently? You know, I, I think most people are quite aware that the world really is an uncertain, dynamic, you know, and, and, and interdependent place. I think what happens is people don't take it seriously enough, right? They, they sort of think, oh, yeah, we're in a VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. But then they go about their day as if, and they manage others as if it's supposed to be predictable and certain. So I, I think I'm seeing two things. One, there is a, um, a growing uh-oh, right? There's a growing real appreciation. And, and I think largely due to the events of the last year, the pandemic, that we really are in an unpredictable, uncertain, interdependent world, right? That, that, that's, and then it's kind of, hmm, you know, that means I don't have a clear line of sight, right? That means that a lot of our old, old habits and routines won't work. Uh, but then, then people are left wondering, well, what now and how, and, you know, and how do we fix that? So I'm, I think I'm seeing a lot of recognition, a lot of anxiety as a result of that. And with, with some hope, curiosity about what next. So what are some of the characteristics, I suppose, then, Amy, of the teams that are doing better than others and, and adapting to a, to a more uncertain world? You know, a, a short way to answer that would be they're more agile. But what does that mean? Right? Yeah. So they're, they're, they're more agile. It's a, it's a combination of external and internal, meaning they're more aware of what's going on out there. They're, they're more in touch with their 
their customers and their their um, you know the, the, their upstream colleagues, the people who are who are doing work that in some way touches or depends on theirs. There's a there's just a greater fluency and porousness about uh, about those teams. They're 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 looking outward um, as much as inward. But when they're looking inward, they're also very um, learning oriented, right? They're they're um, they're asking each other questions. They're 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 testing the waters. They're just they're just they're they're energized by their work. Um, they're in some cases humbled by their work, but they're not daunted by it. Yeah, and I think at least the way that a way that I'm seeing it, Amy, and I'm curious about your observations is that more I'm encouraged on the one hand that there seems to be more awareness of the things that we need to do to build terrific organizations and engage our employees and have really high performing teams yes. but but it, the gap is in the doing and I, and then that's not a unique thing to now but what what are some of the things that are getting in the way of us closing that gap <laughs> human nature <laughs> okay. uh, is, a, is, a, is a good place to start. So let's 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 talk about you know I think you alluded to it, but what does it look like? Right, it's it's diverse input, thoughtful debate or processing of what we know, what we hypothesize, and and smart experimentation. I mean, I think when 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 people in teams are doing those kinds of behaviors, they're welcoming diverse input. They're processing it, they're sort of going, hmm, what next? And what do we test and how do we test it? Um, that's that's where the knowing doing gap is closed as much as, much as possible. But human nature makes all three of those things, if you, you know, welcoming diverse input, thoughtful debate, and, and, and sort of thoughtful experiments, makes them really hard because we prefer certainty we have this funny feeling that we see reality, which of course we don't. We see reality filtered through our own experiences. Um, so our, there's aspects of our, our, our brains, our, our cognition that sort of get us in trouble because they lead us astray. Um, and then there's just, you know, the thing I've spent the most time studying and thinking about in, in teams is that worry, that interpersonal worry, right? That, well, if I say that, my colleagues will think I'm stupid, or if I ask that, they'll think I'm unprepared. And, and so people are, you know, day in and day out, and sometimes consciously, sometimes just, you know, subconsciously holding back, right? They're holding back a lot of the good stuff. They're, they'll wait and see, rather than just dive right in, you know, sleeves rolled up, okay, here goes they will um, kind of read the tea leaves, if you will. Right. And that kind of takes us to what you've called psychological safety. And I, I, I realize that, that people will be tuning in right now with varying degrees of knowledge of what psychological safety is. And maybe that's a really good place to start, Amy, is with the term, what's the simple definition of psychological safety? It, it's a climate in which people believe that speaking up will not lead to rejection or punishment of some kind. I know that's a little bit of a negative definition, but the, the positive is I, I, there's a confidence that speaking up will be welcomed. Yeah, well, and I think that we're our own worst enemies and you talk about how we're naturally wired a little bit. That, that I can, I'm already imagining all the things and the times in my career where I haven't said something because again, I didn't wanna look silly. I didn't wanna look stupid. I didn't wanna rock the boat. So I can, uh, I can certainly relate to that. And now in your book, I like how you've laid it out in very, very simple terms. 
it's hard to do, but but you've laid it out in a, in a fairly fairly simple approach. And you, so you talk about three things. You talk about setting the stage, inviting participation, and the third one being responding productively. And I wonder if we can talk about what those mean a little bit. So in terms of setting the stage, Amy, what what is that in the organization? Well, you, yeah, setting the stage is exactly, you know, it's the term I use because I want to give the idea that this is in advance, right? In advance of a meeting, at the beginning of a day, right? This is the kind of thing one can do routinely almost before we get into it, right? So, so that means, um, and setting the stage to be is fundamentally about two things, two messages. One is what we've been talking about already, which is, wow, we are in a complex, uncertain world, right? Or, you know, the, the market we're playing in is really full of uncertainties or challenges. So by, by, I call that framing the work, but by laying out that I know, and you should know that this is really challenging and it's going to take everything we've got, you're, you're issuing a rationale for why other people should believe that you that you genuinely want their voice. And by the way, I'm speaking about this as if I'm the boss and and someone else is the is is the subordinate. It's not at all what I mean. I mean, I think any one of us can sort of call attention to the uncertainty. Maybe that's the simplest way to put it. Call attention to the uncertainty so that it makes logical sense that people's voices should be heard even when they themselves are not 100% sure that what they have to say is helpful, right? And then the other aspect of, of setting the stage is remind, you know, remind yourself, remind your colleagues of, of purpose, right? Because everything we're about, everything we're talking about here is really effortful, right? I mean, it's wow. so much easier to just, you know, go through the motions. But if you want to be all in and contributing to learning and engaging and creating new things, you're going to be taking risks and you're also going to be working hard. And if, and, and so there's got to be a reason to work hard. And the best reason I know of to work hard is because you believe you're making a difference. You're contributing to something that in some small or large way makes a better world. Yeah, absolutely. Amy, what's the relationship that psychological safety has with whether the stakes are high or low and setting the stage? <laughs> I'm not sure I fully understand the question. Yeah, so if it, it occurs to me like there's probably different approaches. If if like if you're working in a hospital, the stakes are very very high. Whereas oh, you know maybe yeah, yeah, if, we're, yeah. if we're if we're if we're actually in a startup or something, and and experimentation is is going to be less fatal to the organization's results. How might yeah. we how might we set the stage differently in those situations? Great, 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 great. So let's, I think what we're really talking about, because everybody believes, or at least there's, if you're, if you're that entrepreneur, the stakes feel pretty high to you, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, but it's, it's, so part of what we're talking about is um, reversibility. Um, and, and, you know, certainly harming a patient is a non-reversible uh, event. And you, you know, you, so you want to, so in, in, in high risk settings, we want to be very, very careful, which is all the more reason that we need everybody's voices, right? You might see something I miss and vice versa. So we need to be all the more cautious in our actions, which means we need to be less cautious in our voice, right? Um, if you can experiment, um, you know, actively experiment without causing a lot of harm, um, then by all means do so. Although I would still say you don't want to waste resources 
that yeah. could have been, you know, could have been uh, not wasted had you talked to people who said, no, 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 already tried that, you know, that sort of that sharing. Yeah. Uh, but in high risk industries, as opposed to high stakes, it's always crucial to get those diverse voices before you do something that's potentially irreversible. Yeah, yeah, no, good point. So then the second one, Amy, that you talk about is inviting participation. So what does that look like in the workplace? It's such a simple thing and so often forgotten or neglected. Um, and that's simply the art of asking questions. Of uh, It's one thing to say, hey, everybody's voice matters. It's another to say, hey, Jeff, I'd love an update on your project or what, what other options, what other options are you thinking of? Right? Where, where at that moment, when I say, Jeff, what options are you thinking of? It would become rather challenging to sit there mute, right? Yeah. The default is always, I won't say something. But if I, if, if someone, anyone asks you a direct question, you generally feel called upon to respond. It's again, human nature. Yeah, yeah. I think genuine curiosity, I think more and more is becoming a superpower of, of highly effective people, whether you're whether you're in a leadership position uh, or, or not. It kind of makes me think even of uh, what do we what do we call it? Um, it's in Adam Grant's latest book. I think, again, there's a behavioral interviewing technique that he talks about there, where even if someone knows that you're there to change their mind, if you do it the right way and you're legitimately curious and genuine, it still has a profound effect on the outcome of the conversation. Indeed. Yeah. Because and that genuine that word genuine is so important because if it's uh, fake curiosity, I think it 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 comes through. Yeah, absolutely. So, what about responding productively then? So, what does that look like? The essence of a productive response, and of course, we're really talking about you know you hear a question that you might privately think is you know, something that a person should have known already, um, or you hear bad news, or, or you hear of a problem of some kind, um, or an idea that you don't like very much. And all, all of those cases, the, the content of the voice might not be what you're, you're dearly wanted. And you still must have a productive response, which has two features. One, it's appreciative. Like, oh, thanks for sharing. And two, it's forward-looking. Right. And, and by force, especially with bad news, right? Someone brings you evidence of a serious problem that's going to affect a customer. Let's say it's always thank you for that clear line of sight. And how can I help? Or what ideas do you have? It's got to be forward looking because our instinct, our human instinct is to say, how did that happen? Right. Which is a, an important question for later not for right now, like right now, in order for you to feel good about bringing it forward and for us to solve the problem, we're looking forward. Yeah. So they don't sound particularly complicated, Amy. No, no. And yet they're not, these are not embedded in most organizations. And I don't know, you know, we would just totally be, you know, hazarding a, a guess to say how many organizations are actually doing this. So if it's not that hard to understand, like what are, what are some of the reasons that we don't do this more? And then what are some sort of simple ways that an organization could get started on some implementation? I like to say that the basic human challenge is that it's hard to learn if you already know. So this goes back to our hardwiring, right? Our hardwiring leads us to have the experience of knowing you know, 
maybe little children have that experience of, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And then they're out there trying to figure it all out. Um, And our job is just to keep them safe while they do that, right? But if, um, if we, certainly by the time you're an adult, there's a very strong sense that I see things as they are. You know, it's, it's, it, that may cover, in fact, a lot of the territory and be okay, not get you in too much trouble, but it inhibits that part of your brain that would be driving you to ask questions, that, that curiosity, right? So we, we all know how to ask questions, but we fail to do it for two reasons. One, we've, we just assume we already know what's going on. So why would I ask, right? I mean, that would be silly. And two, there is a learned problem, I would say, that, that people often get where they think they've, they've learned that asking a question would, would, would make me look stupid, like uninformed, because I'm supposed to know. When, of course, if you think about the people that you interact with on a regular basis, chances are pretty good that those who are asking good questions are people that you really respect, right? That they seem thoughtful and, and wise and, and interested in the world around them. That makes them very uh, appealing, but we, but we forget to do it. Um, and then the, the reason why the productive response is rare, even though it's so simple, again, is that there's that first instinct. When we hear bad news, it's, it's threatening. We're upset. You know, maybe the amygdala kicks in and then it, you know, it's, it's a surprise, generally not a happy surprise. And so there's a first instinct, which is how the heck did that happen? Right. Rather than thanks for that clear line of sight. Yeah. Uh, David Marquet calls the, those leading questions when you're trying to fake curiosity, he calls them dirty questions. Ooh. So I, I wonder if there's, there's a bit of an art to that as well. Like if, if you know the answer and you're just asking to try to fake the safety part, I think that's pretty obvious, but there must be a certain level, Amy, of competence that you still have to be able to demonstrate despite asking a bunch of questions. Like, what's the relationship to competence oh, yeah. and curiosity? I mean, Chris Argerus, who was one of my mentors, who um, passed away at the age of 93 about eight years ago or so, um, and was quite a, quite a famous scholar and very active in the world of, of, of practice, um, talked about, you know, in the simplest terms, the need for us to balance, which doesn't mean 50-50, but that some mix, some healthy mix, advocacy and inquiry. And advocacy is making statements and sometimes demonstrating your expertise. And inquiry is asking, not fake, but good questions. Um, what his observation was over many, many years of recording many, many meetings in companies is that inquiry was a rare beast, right? So that, that what happens is we spend so much time telling and advocating we don't and we spend very little time inquiring and probing and seeking and and exploring and so it's it's we most people don't need to be helped um expressing their view they'll do that just fine right so i don't mean to ignore that side i mean to say that it usually has a pretty healthy yeah response that's the default that's and so that certainly seems like a blind spot that most of us would share yeah. in common and so you know err on the side of inquiry and you're going to be okay right um, exactly yeah yeah no that that makes a lot of sense i also wonder if there's a certain segment of leadership that understands the concepts but deliberately decide not to institute psychological safety because they, they there's misconceptions 
that might be a play. What are some of the common misconceptions that you've come across in your work? Uh, here's a couple. Number one, psychological safety is about being nice, um, which by <laughs> the way, I don't, I don't want to say I'm not about, you know, I, I don't want to say I'm about being mean, right? I'm not, I'm not a fan of being mean, but being nice in the workplace is often code for, I'm not going to tell you what I really think. Right? Yeah. because it wouldn't be nice. It wouldn't be face-saving. But I have no problem telling my colleague in the hallway what I really think. And, and there is an interpretation there that that's not very nice. But anyway, um, so you know, it's, it's easy for people to internalize a code. I can't tell you how many companies I've been in where they will sort of take me aside and say, well, we have something here called company name nice. You know, insert whatever company name. Sure, this doesn't happen in Canada ever. Just kidding. It's more so. It happens right. more so, Amy. You know more that, so, right? right? So it's, we apologize you know, for everything. Yeah. Right. So we have company name nice, um, which on the on the one hand is, you know, it's it's lovely that 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 warmth, that politeness is lovely. On the other hand, in a fast-moving world, vital information is lost and 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 resources are squandered and uh, you know, time is lost. So so it's not about being nice. It's not about it's not anything remotely associated with being comfortable because in a psychologically safe environment, there's more candor. That means there's more conflict. That means there's more debate. Um, and, and, and by the way, there's skills for doing that quickly and efficiently. Um, and, and so uh, it doesn't, and it also doesn't mean a sloppiness where everybody's voice has to be heard on every single topic. No, we have to be disciplined and candid. Uh, and there's more we can say about that. So that's probably the biggest ones. I guess the last one would be that somehow people think it's a trade-off, right? We're either going to have psychological safety or we're going to have high standards or we're going to be in some messy spot in between. Not at all, right? The, the, this is not a trade-off. This is a both and uh, challenge, right? We need both high standards. We need to be clear about what good looks like and where we're trying to go and how ambitious we are in getting there. Um, and we need an environment of true candor. Right. And that's that that's that learning zone that you talk right. about. Psychological safety devoid of high accountability is uh, is not going to get us the, the outcomes that we right. want. It's not the essence of what you intend. Uh, no. what you've intended. Yeah. yeah. No, that's good. So you mentioned you do mention candor, Amy, and I know I've heard you talk about candor quite a bit, but how do you decide sort of what's a healthy level of candor in an organization? Because I don't, I'm not sure the Ray Dalio model is for most of us, but no. we could probably yeah. benefit going more that way. But how do you assess healthy candor? Yeah, I think healthy candor is compassionate candor, right? Healthy candor is, um, and humble candor, right? I'm going to do the very best I can to tell you what I'm thinking. And, um, I'm under no illusion that I have special information from on high, right? So when I say something, I, I don't mean that this is right. This is just how I see it now. So we have to come from a place of willingness to share and curiosity about a couple of key things. One, curiosity about what others bring. And two, curiosity about how we're being heard. Because it, the chances are pretty good that you're not hearing what I'm trying to say exactly the way I want it to be. So we got to get into a little bit of a dialogue to make sure that we're communicating clearly and, and, and you know, with the, the signal doesn't get lost in the noise. 
Yeah. Well, and it's a good reminder that I think the paradigm shift with feedback is it's it's not the receiver or it's not the giver that's in charge of how well that conversation goes. Usually it's the receiver. And right. it's and it's hard for all the reasons that you just mentioned, because we start to shut down, we justify, we deny, we deflect, all those kinds of things. And the better we can get at receiving it, the more we're going to get it. And ultimately, the more we're going to improve. The other, so the other piece with this, Amy, is just, I, and I get this confused quite a bit, is I've, I've, uh, I've thought about psychological safety as being trust, and it's not. But there is a strong relationship, of course. But what is the difference, I guess, the main differences between psychological safety and trust? No, the, the, the main difference, because they are highly related. In fact, I tend to think of psychological safety, which describes a climate, whereas trust Trust describes um, an impression I have of another person or entity, um, right? So trust is about whether I believe someone is can be counted on to do what they say. Do they have do they have integrity? Do they do they have even the competence to to follow up on what what they say? That's my perception of another person. Where psychological safety is our perception of what the environment is like around here. A psychologically safe environment tends to be one where there's high trust and high respect. Right? I, I not only trust you, um, but I respect you. And wow, what a great place to work that is. Yeah, no, that that's helpful. Now, I also, when I think about your work, I don't think we'll ever know everything about another person and even our significant others as an as an example. So there's there's two parts to this question is, first of all, how do we decide as employees what absolutely is critical to share versus what might not be essential? And then I'll have a second. I have a second to that after. You'll never have it perfectly right. Yeah, you know, it's kind of a um, let's navigate up a, upstream to, to get there. But you will. What I, th I think the discernment one is trying to make is, is this relevant to the project? Is this relevant to what we're trying to get done? Is this relevant to solving the customer's problems? And err on the side of inclusion, right? If you're not sure, um, just try it and say it as a try it, right? Here, here I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, this might be helpful. Um, what do you think? Right? So it's, if, if, we, if we discipline ourselves to be focused on the work and what it needs and fully aware that, yeah. There's uncertainty here, so we won't know for sure, and then help each other get closer to that ideal through feedback, you know, through through honest responses, um, and and help you know, and help people understand how effective they're being or ineffective they're being. We'll get closer to the skill level that we we need. Yeah, and so the follow up to that, Amy, then is especially at the senior levels. I think we lull ourselves into a false sense of security that you know we're on our way. We're we've 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 now made a lot of progress and it's a safe it's a safe climate, when it may not be. What are some ways that we can actually test if we've maybe crossed the threshold of now we think we have a fairly psychologically safe company? Ask yourself honestly, um, what is the ratio of good news to bad news that I'm hearing? What is the ratio of of reports of what's happening to questions about what could happen you know and and the the more you're getting sort of sanitized or good news relative to uncertainty or possibility the more you should have a little bit of a worry that you're not getting the full scoop and that people aren't able um you know aren't 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 um 
taking enough risks, both interpersonally and, and from a, a business or scientific uh, perspective. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's like the um, dog that didn't bark in the Sherlock Holmes mystery, right? You have to train yourself to be listening for the things that aren't happening as well as the things that are happening. And if it's only good news, it's just unlikely that the world is giving you only good news right now, right? It's, mo it's more likely that there's bad news out there, but you're not hearing it. Yeah, yeah. So go and seek it if you're not hearing it. And as, as our people start to warm up to this idea a little bit, even though we might be inviting and encouraging more of this feedback, it's still not always easy to hear. Like, what are some of the reasons that you see managers uh, take exception when their subordinates start to speak up? Most of the time, it's because it, the, the speaking up contradicts something that the manager believes to be true already. And it's a, you know, that's a, that's a um, sort of a, it's always, that's always a psychologically challenging um, thing. It's, it's hard for all of us to kind of reorient our view of something. You know, if I'm if I'm convinced it's blue and you're telling me it's green, it's like I, I mean, it might be some something wrong with my eyes. It might be, but but I at least should entertain. Um, you know, I need to be willing to entertain the possibility that I'm missing something, but that doesn't come naturally. Yeah, yeah, and our our place in the organization. I think if I mean, if you're a manager and people start to question what you're doing and they have different opinions, if you're not if you don't have the right support above you you could actually be deemed as an incompetent manager. I think about that all the time. And it's just so incumbent upon anybody in a leadership position to have a really good lens into the caliber and the quality of the people that you have in those positions. Right, right. And you know, one of the things we haven't talked about, but it's just sort of in the backdrop is there is a, a spectrum from really certain clear cut recipe driven work. Yeah. And, you know, really uncertain, we don't even have a clue how to get the result we want, right? So, yeah. you know, from, from, and that's not a value judgment, it's a statement of uncertainty. And, and if you are part of a production process, which has high knowledge and a high need for efficiency, uh, there's a, there are different things you need to do and want to ensure the highest possible performance there. For example, Toyota production system, you, the Toyota production system is designed such that anyone at any level is comfortable pulling the end on cord to say, I see a, a problem. It might not even be a problem, but it might be, right? There's sort of the, that willingness to entertain um, in, the, in the gray zone. Um, and, and that's where excellence comes from. You know, that's where Six Sigma comes from. It's from that absolute willingness of people to not only implement the formula faithfully, but be utterly willing to speak up when they see not just a deviation, but a potential deviation. Yeah. At the other side of the spectrum, let's say, you know, nine months ago, you were a scientist trying to come up with a vaccine in, for COVID in, you know, record time rather than the usual four or five years it would take. Um, you were facing enormous uncertainty, you know, absolutely no line of sight at all on how this would be done or whether indeed it could be done. So you're, you're fair game to try everything within, within reason for the science as you understand it, right? So you're just, you're running experiments all day long and most of them are failing. 
Yeah. And, and, and that's good performance. So, so if you, if you follow this spectrum from, you know, very low uncertainty to very high uncertainty, clearly there's, you know, there's different nuances, but in all cases, you want people to feel not tied up in knots about speaking up. Yeah. Amy, it, it also occurs to me that quite often, I think we're looking at, uh, at, creating a company that has psychological safety as as moving towards that because we're not there yet but i also wonder about companies that more or less are above that threshold already they've done the work yeah they've got a great culture i wonder if there's some blind spots there and like one of the ones i think about quite often in a highly psychological uh, psychologically safe company is it tricky for new employees to get sort of onboarded because it's like, whoa, I've never worked in a company like this. What this is uncomfortable. Like, what are, are there are there some blind spots for leaders in safe organizations? I think that's a great question. I have to give that some thought. I want to say first though that I think it would be rare, if almost impossible, to have a fully, perfectly psychologically safe environment. Again, there's so much of human nature and organizational nature that push it against that, right? They keep pushing us to hold back, hold back, wait and see, stay safe, self-protect, right? It's instinctive to self-protect. But so what I've seen more often is that in a company that's doing pretty well, you still have pockets of higher and lower psychological safety, right? It's a, it's a variegated quilt yeah. of experiences. And we might have just an amazing little team over here that's candid, that's energized, that's agile, and then one over there, not so much. So, yeah. so the, the obligation of a company that's doing pretty well of bringing new people in is first and foremost, be very clear about the ambition, you know, the ambition to, we're, we're, we're trying to create an environment where people can really be candid, you know, that, and by the way, that doesn't mean having the right answers all the time. That means being willing uh, to ask the right questions. That means being willing to offer a half idea on the off chance that someone else might be able to convert it into a breakthrough idea, right? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of onboarding messaging that's 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 valuable and then probably some useful training and just the art of good questions and and yeah. um, and helping people really understand like a toyota for example that we're different and we're di you don't have to take these behaviors to your next you know dinner party but here at work this is how we roll right mm -hmm. we're just gonna err on the side of it, i might sound stupid here but yeah. Yeah. That's good. And that was, uh, Amy, that was for some better reference. That was kind of like an asking for a friend kind of question. We, <laughs> we, we quite, it's, it's fairly common in our team that people will be very vulnerable and open with one another. And sometimes people have referred to our culture as a bit of a cult. And so I'm worried, I'm always worried about forced vulnerability. Yeah. And, uh, and that's a big reason why I wanted to add, to answer the question. Uh, make it discussable, right? Make yeah. your, make your worry discussable. Yeah. Right. Sort of just like you just did. Hey, you know, we've had we worry that people coming from the outside might think or might feel pressured or might something. Um, but as long as it's discussable, I think we can deal with almost anything. Yeah, that's great. I, and I actually have had some of those conversations even just in recent weeks. So that's uh, that's great advice. Now, something else you talk about is workarounds. And <laughs> and and here and here's the thing about workarounds, Amy. When I was reading your book, I thought, OK, 
autonomy is a staple of a highly engaged culture. And so someone that's autonomous will recognize a problem. They won't surface it. They'll figure it out and they'll move on. And that's great. Removes bottlenecks. We can keep growing and hit an accelerator. But there's hidden problems with, with workarounds. What are they? Right. Well, the, the main problem is this, and so this doesn't apply to all workarounds. Like you might have just discovered a genuinely better way to do something by all means, right? Keep it up. The problem, the kinds of workarounds that we studied, and a lot of these were in healthcare, and this was work with Anita Tucker at, at BU, were, were, were nurses in, in, in encountering a problem, you know, something in the way that made it difficult to kind of continue the task. And they'd they create a workaround, right? And 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 largely they're skillful. They do it. They do it in a way that was safe and and got the job done. But what it didn't do was fix the problem, so it's not there next time, you know. And Anita was able to show that on average, these these um, you know these well trained clinicians were losing an hour or more a day when you added up all of the workarounds. So the um, the, the the big challenge is: can you not only Get, do what needs to be done today in this moment, but also initiate a process for fixing the underlying problem, right? So that, that you're not paying for it again and again. And here's what we found is that too many times the problem that you face in your job originated from some other department, right? Let's say yeah. the supply of linen. So it's um, so the reason why you can't just be one of these autonomous energized employees who fixes it yourself is that it's it necessarily requires a little bit of coordination with those other guys yeah yeah no that that makes sense uh now the other thing that kind of struck me as odd was uh we talk a lot about with our clients the importance of setting ambitious goals and having a BHAG and it generates the resourcefulness, the stick to itness, you know, the the drive and determination to do big things and and that kind of thing. But there can be some danger if you set big goals the wrong way. What are some of those dangers and hazards, Amy? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I I can think of I can think of the psychological danger of setting a goal that's so ambitious. You know, this is Sisyphus put it, pushing the boulder up the hill. Maybe that's so you know, fundamentally can't be achieved, then that could be discouraging, right? And then that yeah. also could lead us to stop truth-telling because we're all colluding in a lie, right? A, a kind of colluding in a sacred myth where um, we're, we're saying, yeah, we're going to do this, wink, wink. We're not, we're not going to do this, right? So that's one, one risk. We don't want people getting, when people are discouraged, they disengage. When they disengage, they're not as, as creative and able. Um, and, and, um, and so that's sort of the primary one that comes to mind that's in my, you know, my zone of expertise. Uh, but what were you thinking about? Yeah, well, it, it was just more, I think, the achieving the goal at all costs. And then, oh, the, you know, the well, goal, yes. Yeah. And the goal okay. becomes the yeah. thing instead of the right, process right, right, and right, the quality right. of work. Yeah. See, yeah. I guess what I was, so here's what I would say, right? I, I'm a big fan of ambitious goals, right? Yeah. I mean, of course I am. Um, so if, if you're going to have those, and I advocate it, right? You better have open ears, right? So I like yeah. to say that a formula for failure in today's world is stretch goals and closed ears. Mm. Because then what you've done is said, as happened at Volkswagen, as happened at Wells Fargo, yeah. this is where we're going. It must be this. Yeah. 
better get it done or else, right? And then that leads, the risk there is one of, of shortcuts, cheating, you know, and, and, uh, and, and of course, even boarding up, bordering on or achieving illegal activities uh, to yeah, get it done. For sure. I mean, and we could probably spend a whole other episode talking about the, the ramifications of shareholder greed and quarterly earnings reports and all those kinds of things that... Uh, yeah, or the belief, you know, or the belief that those things are somehow, you know, privileged above all else, you know, above safety, above truth-telling, above... Yeah. Um, above yeah. health. Amy, well, I guess it's 10 years ago now since the tsunamis, the devastating tsunamis hit the coast of Japan and uh, just the, the just how awful those were all the way around and, and the, the damage that was done to uh, one of the nuclear power plants in particular. You highlight the story that there were experts many, many years in advance, environmentalists as an example, maybe even geophysicists that were recommending preventative measures that were ignored. And when I read that story, I think, geez, like we got to listen to the experts more. But here's the, here's a problem that, that I think a lot of us are having is when you're in the moment without the value of hindsight, how do we determine who the experts are? And I mean, that's a loaded question based on what we're looking at now politically and, and in healthcare with COVID. Well, I, I mean, sometimes that's a relatively straightforward question, right? I mean, a, a um, an infectious disease expert is is the right kind of expert to listen to about infectious diseases. Um, not my not my neighbor. <laughs> what? Not my neighbor. <laughs> not your neighbor. Not your neighbor, Larry. Um, or maybe I don't know. Maybe Larry's an infectious disease expert, but but uh, maybe he doesn't exist. But anyway, it, you know, in some cases. Um, Here's the, you know, in, in intellectually, it's not as hard to figure out which experts to listen to about which problems. Um, what's even harder is, is re recognizing when you should be listening to a non-expert as well, right? Because sometimes the non-expert has the sort of uh, out of the box idea or observation that the expert misses because um, there is certain tunnel vision that came with, with the expertise. Um, but your, your first instinct has got to be to listen to your experts um, and for complex problems, which so many are, you, you need to pull together experts. So for example, in a global pandemic, you want an infectious disease expert. You also want a public communications expert. And you also want, um, you know, a, a, um, people who can, um, help us with the technology that allowed us to continue to you know stay safe and and continue to work on our our jobs um, without going out and infecting each other right so there's a whole there's a lot of different expertise expertise tends to be deep and narrow and deeply important um, and problems especially wicked problems um, often require more than one area of expertise to come up with a viable and novel solution yeah, yeah, no, that's that's um, that's good advice, Amy, for sure. And it's, I mean, it, and again, it sounds simple, but there's lots of things right now in the environment that's causing us to not necessarily listen to the people that uh, that, that that we should be. Amy, I wanted to talk about teaming a little bit and uh, something else that you're passionate about and, and an expert in. And there's there's a there's a dynamic that takes place. Like if you get 20 people from one company that have a pretty good culture, safe trust, all the things that you're sort of looking for. The moment that you break them down into small groups, 
and you have them do kind of an activity, some kind of an activity with an outcome, even without telling them it's a competition, it occurs to me that, <laughs> that they naturally compete against each other. And so in your work, have you found that silos actually are naturally occurring, that we compete against each other just as human nature? Yeah, we do. And of course, there is a there is a, an interpretation, which is often reasonably accurate, that we're competing for scarce resources, um, which is true and difficult to solve unless you go up a level of analysis, meaning unless you decide, wait a minute, wait a minute, why are we really here? You know, we're really here to do some, you know, create some challenging value that that literally no individual area of expertise could do on their own, right? Nobody can, you know, manufacturing can't create a car on its own. Um, it needs the designers, it needs the marketers, it needs the um, the financiers and on and on it goes. Um, it needs engineers, it needs supply chain. So the, um, the if, if you can keep in mind the real goal, keep that front of mind, then the competitive instinct, you know, the, 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 the viewing of the world as a place where we are competing always for scarce resources, which again, there's, there's validity there, but it's not helpful when we are get stuck in that kind of thinking, because then we can't do the teaming across silos that, that we need to do. Yeah. I mean, are, what are a couple, if there's some simple little things that you see companies that do a great job sort of breaking down and removing silos, what would some of those examples be, Amy? You know, it's really first and foremost, start, keep, keep coming back to that shared purpose. Keep putting, and I think the companies that do a great job of making that primary and almost unforgettable in people's, you know, the, the, the purpose, our shared purpose, our corporate purpose is I can see quickly how, I mean, and, and fully how that connects to what I do, like how what I do helps in some way. So keeping that um, absolutely front and center. Uh, second, um, creating, deliberately creating forums that bring people together to kind of share ideas and expertise, and usually with a, a purpose, meaning a, a, a goal uh, that we're trying to work on together, but creating those forums and structuring them such that uh, people are helped with their blind spots, meaning they're helped yeah. uh, to share their own perspectives, you know, which are fundamentally about what we're trying to do, what we bring, you know, what we're sort of up against, and then in return, finding exactly what you're trying to do, what you bring and what you're up against so that we can kind of understand each other better. You know, once I understand where those people from that other silo are coming from better, I like them better. Once I like them better, I'm more willing to be vulnerable. I'm more willing to, you know, be open and, and, and considerate. And then we can work together more easily. Yeah. It, it reminds me, I saw a story probably a handful of months ago and it was a large corporation lots of silos and and what they did to break them down is they just had the various divisions have 15 minute weekly phone calls with each other one-on-one -on -one for 30 days and the only rule they had well there's two rules they had to talk for 15 minutes and they could not talk about work and that huh. was it and that, wow. and that apparently that solved it all i mean i'm sure there's a lot more context if we dug into it but it's interesting how just the personal relationship part can be so simple and so powerful yeah it's true. One quite often when we think we don't like someone, it's because we don't really understand where they're coming from well enough 
And if we could better put ourselves in their shoes, we're better able, we end up liking them more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well said. Amy, in the time that we have left, I want to transition to a different sort of set of questions, a little bit more personally focused, but still uh, still related to what you're doing, of course. And so the first one that I have for you is you made some of your major discoveries on psychological safety in the 90s. But I've, it, it seems like we're just now, I, I, are we approaching a tipping point? But if we are, what's taken so long for this amazing idea to catch on? I, I think the main thing is that people are unaware of not knowing, right? So it just comes where we haven't, and I really do believe in this last year, there's been a sea change in terms of our, our collective appreciation for just how much uncertainty and interdependence um, and, 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 and speed of change, you know, we, we all face. Like there's so many more conversations now about the future of work. We didn't used to talk about that. Just assumed the future of work would be a little like past of work, but maybe more modern. Now you have people debating wildly about, you know, are we gonna work from home? Are we gonna, uh, on and on it goes, right? So I think we've really, gra we've really grasped that, that VUCA world. And then that leads us to realize we're dependent on each other's gifts of, of knowledge. So, so that's made it more salient. That's made it more relevant than ever before. Um, it's hard to underestimate the importance of the study done at Google uh, to answer yeah, your question. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful study and well publicized in a lovely article in the New York Times by Charles Duhigg. And um, I think that work, we're, we're short story was that Google found that psychological safety was the factor in explaining performance differences across teens. And that got people's attention because, you know, Google's obviously full of very smart people with very good data. And, and so when, when Google spoke up uh, with that secret to high-performing teams, people listened. And, and then that, that gave it a, a boost. Um, and then I think all this uncertainty has led people to have more humility and yeah. curiosity about why this might be important to their business. Yeah, for sure. And for those of you not not familiar with the study at Google that Amy's referencing, just Google, literally Google Project Aristotle, and uh, hard to believe it was nine years ago, I think now that those, wasn't it nine years ago? Well, the New York Times piece was five years ago. Yeah. I mean, I think they started because it was a, a, a longitudinal study, but the yeah. The article, the the well publicized uh, write up was was um, in twenty. I mean, uh, twenty sixteen. Yeah. So one of the things, Amy, that I'm also really fascinated about is is successful people's uh, people of influence's relationship with fear, and imposter syndrome. So I'm curious. So what is your relationship with imposter syndrome, and what activities cause you to experience it the most? Oh, I'm we're 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 very close friends, uh, imposter syndrome and I, we, we, we spend a lot of time together um, and we have for very many years, right? Our relationship seems to uh, be a robust, um, strong relationship over the years. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I wish I could, um, I wish I could get that. So, I mean, I think this friend of mine brings some good because it keeps, it keeps you trying. It keeps you, you know, it keeps me working hard um, and, um, and yet, um, it can also be, as everyone I think out there knows a little bit crippling because it's, um, you don't want to be, uh, you don't want it to be proven right once and for all. Yep. Turns out you really are an imposter. So, uh, but, but I, but, um, 
I think it helps to remind yourself that um, you're not alone. You know, most um, most people feel some anxiety about, am I really, do I really meant to be here, right? Should I really have gotten into this school or this company or um, these, these achievements must be luck and it's gonna be found out pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've, I haven't seen one yet, but I'd love to see a study commissioned on what's the difference between people that make it work for them versus the ones that don't, because it uh, could be debilitating if you don't learn how to use it for you. I think the difference really is that growth mindset. You know, if you can sort yeah. of keep reminding yourself that um, your, your value lies in, in your ability to keep learning and, and keep growing rather than in what you know or your expertise uh, at this moment, um, then you realize that he, the imposter syndrome can just be like, okay, you're a good friend, but maybe take a hike for a little while. <laughs> yeah, well said. <laughs> Amy, you also talk a lot about failure and there's different kinds of failure. So there's good failure and there's bad failure. And I wondered if you'd be willing to share with us an example of a good failure that you have made in your career. <laughs> oh dear, so many. But I mean, I guess the um, the quickest the 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 um, here here's the because I know we don't have much time. So here's one where I I submitted a paper to an academic journal, um, and um, it, it it clearly wasn't uh, it wasn't good enough. I didn't know that, but it wasn't good enough. It got rejected, um, and um, so then I had to sit down and think about where I'd failed, why it wasn't good enough and make major changes to it. Um, and then I was at that point where you have to decide, do I send it to a less good journal? Um, or now that I understand better where I failed, do I try to send it to an even better journal than the first one, which I, which I did, and that ended up being a pretty good decision. <laughs> That's right, a great so it was example. very sad when it got rejected, yeah, no kidding. but it ended up being a better paper yeah. and yeah. ultimately a better accomplishment too. Yeah. Yeah, we can only connect those. Uh, what's that's the Steve Jobs commencement speech, right? We can only connect those dots in hindsight. And before we go to the three and thirty, Amy, one last question for you is: at this at this point of your career, what's the most important thing to you? What matters most to you right now? It's 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 a blend. What what I want to say is a blend of giving back and influencing, right? Because what matters to me. Uh, is not, and this is sincere, not, it's not me. I've, I've, I've accomplished more than I ever, this imposter has accomplished more than she ever thought possible. Um, but it's, it's, so it's time to make sure and do what I can to help others use it, right, in their day-to-day -day lives in, in a way that enriches um, those lives and, and those workplaces. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Amy. And I'll I'll attest to your enhanced influence because your Twitter uh, profile continues to go up and up and up, and I've really enjoyed engaging with you on the on that platform. Likewise. So yeah. that uh, that brings us to and it just don't pay attention to my Tom Brady tweets though, Amy. Just just pay attention to the business <laughs> ones. And, and certainly, I, I don't have much. I don't know. I I don't know if you're going in favor or against Tom Brady, but he's 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 gone from our lives now. I know. Well, I love, I still love Tom Brady, but I'm a Patriots fan through and through, but then feel free to correct me if I'm ever wrong on some of my leadership assertions. So excellent. Uh, look forward to that. Yeah. So this brings us to, uh, to one of our most popular segments, which is three and 30. And this is where Amy will share three simple things that anybody tuning into the episode can do in the next 30 days 
to start applying some of Amy's psychological safety approaches. So Amy, over to you. Oh, you have you have a slide for it, right? I or do. Can you see the slide? No. Let me read. So let me read them for you. Oh, I'm and sorry. You can, and you go? can speak to yeah. them. So so the first one is frame the work as a learning problem. Oh, I found it. I found. I just problem. moved you out of the way. Okay. Hey, right on. Okay. I love it. So, you know, um, these are things we have been talking about over the last hour, but frame the work as a learning problem every day. Like wake, wake up and remind yourself your, you and your work um, are not something to just get done as if a recipe, but something to understand and master and keep experimenting with. It is a learning problem, not an execution problem. That's replacing a default frame that is undeniably there. Just keep replacing it. Acknowledge your own fallibility, right? That is um, you and everyone else on earth is, is a fallible human being. That's okay. Right, it's it's um it's part of what makes life um, rich and interesting. When you let others know that you know, they're going to be more comfortable and more truthful and more willing to come forward. And of course, here's one that we talked a lot about, which is um, be curious, but model that curiosity. Come right out and ask lots of good questions and listen thoughtfully and carefully to what comes back. Excellent advice. Now. Amy, uh, I listened to uh, Adam Grant's most recent podcast this week, and one of the things he, he talked about was a key opportunity coming out of a crisis is to expand your network with loose ties or new ties. And I just wanted to thank you for doing that for me, uh, for doing that for our team, doing that for our whole community. We've been so excited for months at the thought of having you make an appearance on the episode. And uh, there's nothing I could properly say in, in the time that we have to express my gratitude. So just thank you. You are welcome. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our last episode of season three, if you can believe that. And as, the, uh, as a reminder, don't miss out on the bonus offers. We're giving away lots of great things today, including signed copies of Amy's most recent book, The Fearless Organization. We're giving away $50 shop local gift cards. So you can sign up for those automatically in the bonus offer section also by making your posts to social media using the hashtag Unleash Results, we're gonna make the draw on Monday. And if you're ready to take the next step and assess your team's own psychological safety, we are gonna provide a link so you can actually send an assessment out to some of your own team members and see how they feel about the level of safety in the organization. So don't miss out, a chance, don't miss out on a chance to do that. And then we're always looking for fun little ways to even add more value uh, non-business related. And so we've got a special deal. If you want farm fresh, grass-fed beef, poultry, and fish sent to you right to your doorstep through Bessie Box, you can sign up for that for a 10% discount off your first order. And then we're also featuring a, a bonus episode of Unleashed where we're going to turn the tables and we're going to talk about six steps to come out of the pandemic accelerating. So we're going to do an accelerating out of the curve episode on Thursday, April 29th, where local media personality, uh, Quinn Phillips from Global is going to be interviewing me about six key facets of making sure your business is ready to thrive in the last half of 21 and into 2022. And I want to close off just with again, an extra special thank you to everybody. Today is our one year birthday for Unleashed. We have been graced with exceptional thought leaders, authors and researchers. We have learned so much. I have learned so much. This has been a, a complete community effort. 
we've grown because of everyone that tunes into the episodes, whether you're with us live or you're tuning into the podcast or watching the YouTube broadcast after, you know, a year and, and, and one month ago, this is not something we ever could have dreamed up. And we've got some big plans in store for season four that's going to launch in September, but I'm not going to tell you any secrets right now. So until then, everybody be well, take care of yourselves and your families and all of your employees and good luck in creating your own psychologically safe company. Take care, everyone.